Welcome to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine, a show where we report, rebel, and tell it like it is. On this show, we center your concerns about rebuilding our nation and advancing the promise of equality. Join me as we tackle the most compelling issues of our times. On our show, History Matters, we examine the past as we think about its relationship to the future. On today's show, we focus on an important issue. Climate change is real, now what? On March 31st, the Biden administration released the American Jobs Plan, a plan which, according to analysis from a policy brief from the Wharton School at Penn, proposes a $2.3 trillion investment in new federal spending on various forms of public infrastructure, research and development, workforce training, affordable housing, and caregiving, all tied to the environment. The plan would also include an additional $400 billion in clean energy tax credits not specified in the administration's original announcement. Thank you very much, Penn Wharton, for sharing this uh, with all of us. But there are still legislators that deny climate change and global warming as being real. In Flint, Michigan, reports are that the water is clean now, but with a loss of trust, many locals refuse to drink it. And how does global warming and other environmental concerns affect your lives? Some of you want to know, what does environmental and climate justice look like? Now that we've re-entered the Paris Climate Agreement, what next steps must the United States take to address climate change and environmental justice? What can we expect from the Biden-Harris administration? Now, helping us to sort out these issues, unpack these questions, are very important guest. I'm joined by Norbesi Flint. Norbesi Flint serves as a program manager with Black Women for Wellness, where she directs environmental and reproductive health work she organizes community advocacy and also works on policy. I'm also joined by Osprey Oriel Lake. Osprey Oriel Lake is the founder and executive director of the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network International. She is co-director of the Indigenous Women's Divestment delegation, amongst other very important titles. Now, I want to welcome them to our Ms. Magazine show and thank them for addressing these very sensitive and often overlooked matters with us. Thank you so much for joining me today as we talk about these really important issues related to our environment, global warming, um, justice associated with environmentalism. So let's be with thinking about current environmental laws, regulations, and policies. The United States officially re-entered the Paris Climate Agreement, um, and it's an accord that is signed by over 195 governments, and we re-entered it just, um, just in February with this new Biden and Harris administration. And Osprey, you wrote about this um, just a couple months ago, and you said after President Biden signed the instrument to bring the United States back into the Paris um, Agreement, that you know the first important step forward is the United States 
basically restoring a climate agenda. Can you tell us a bit about what you mean about that? And you also mentioned um, the Keystone Pipeline. So can you tell us why it's so important that the Biden-Harris administration takes seriously a climate agenda? Well, thanks so much for having me um, on your show. And yeah, I think that what's really important at this point is to realize that, of course, we're very um, glad that the Biden-Harris administration has re-entered the Paris Climate Agreement. It's absolutely essential because we are in a climate crisis. Um, and at the same time, we would need to recognize this is just the beginning step. It's not the answer. Um, we know that the Biden-Harris administration has talked about building back better. And what I think is important to add to that is to build back fossil free. So, you know, we need to understand that at this point, um, the climate emergency is so uh, severe that it requires that the, um, our government, but governments around the world uh, really place front and center a climate justice framework and realize that we need to not only fulfill, but actually exceed targets in the Paris Climate Agreement at this point. When we look at what scientists have been telling us, um, the IPCC report of 1.5 degrees was released. And you know, we, we know from report after report that the world is on track right now to an alarming you know, three degrees, a little bit even more warming by the end of the century if countries meet their current commitments to cut greenhouse gas emissions under the Paris Agreement. So um, it is a very pivotal moment uh, for the administration here in the US, but we also need to understand that we actually need to um, exceed uh, what, 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 what our commitments are. So, you know, this uh, is a very critical time. And I would also just add that um, we have to get into a very different framework if we're going to actually address the climate crisis at speed and scale. And this is going to mean listening to impacted communities, looking at community-led solutions, and moving away from this concept actually of net zero, uh, because what we actually need is zero emissions. And to go past looking at offsets and carbon trading schemes and get into the actual uh, instruments on the ground that we know frontline communities have been talking about for, for decades. Well, on, on that note, let's level set a little bit. Because when you mention two degrees, three degrees, there are people who don't see, they, they, they don't climate change, right? To them, one degree, two degrees, that's just the difference between one day at 70 degrees and the next day at 72 degrees. And so they have a very difficult time understanding exactly what climate change is. So if we could go remedial or climate change, climate justice 101, what exactly does it mean when we're talking about global warming? What does it really mean talking about climate change in ways that people who are sitting back and struggling uh, to understand? You know, people who say, well, look, this winter it snowed, I made a snowball. What in the world are these people talking about the global warming? I had snow on my deck. Well. I'll put it in really simple terms. Um, I'm here in California. I'm in Northern California. And for the last two years, we've had huge, tremendous fires. And this is, as scientists have told us, because of global warming. 
um, it was predicted that we would see tremendous uh, increase in forest fires, wildfires, and um, there's entire months now where you can't even go outside because the air is so toxic. So that's just one example of the increase of even, um, you know, we're at right now, which isn't even at the uh, 1.5 degrees, that is the ambition of the Climate Paris Agreement. Um, in the Amazon rainforest, uh, we're seeing huge amounts of fire and we're losing our Amazon forest because of, of the fires that are going on. So the increase of fires is something that I think people can really wrap their minds around and to understand that uh, to actually um, monitor and to care for uh, the, the temperature, to actually care for the water that we need and the rainfall that we need. Um, you actually need forests. You need forests to breathe air. They are what produces oxygen. So if we destroy our world forests, and I'm just using forests as one example, we could be talking about oceans, we could be talking about the fact of droughts. But um, I think people have been really aware of these forest fires and um, in terms of being part of the ecological ecosystem as human beings, we, we need forests to live. We need air to be the lungs of our planet. And these come from the trees. And those forests are being greatly diminished because even of the rise that we have so far in uh, the temperatures rising. So there's a huge impact all over the world because of global warming that has already taken place uh, due to the carbon emissions in the atmosphere. Um, I know from a lot of the work that we do with um, frontline communities in the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, the droughts have been excessive. I mean, people are starving because they're not able to grow their food because there's not simply the water there. So a lot of also what's happening with global warming is in some places not enough water, which is causing droughts. And in other areas, too much, wa too much water where we see sea level rise and hurricanes like in the Gulf um, uh, where we've had, you know, uh, hur uh, Hurricane Katrina, which people were very familiar with. So um, I think that if we look at the daily impacts of what is going on with, you know, quote unquote, natural disasters, we need to understand that it is being caused at this point by human activity and the kind of um, pollution that we've put in the atmosphere. And so uh, there's a direct link between our human activity and what's happening with a lot of these ecological crises. Well, I want to circle back to that um, after turning to Norbesi for for a moment, because uh, when when I come back, I, I want to ask you about how this connects to economic justice issues, which you've written about um, in terms of the Pl Paris Climate Agreement and whether it fails to address the root of climate injustice um, in our society and globally. But Norbesi, um, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show as well as Osprey. And you direct reproductive and environmental health policy at Black Women for Wellness, BWW, a shout out for the organization. It's a reproductive justice uh, organization and BWW does so much work on addressing these intersections um, with regard to race, reproductive justice and the environment. So before I ask you a question about black women and hair, which some people might say, what in the world does that have to do with the environment? I, I want to ask you about what has inspired you to be involved in the area of environmental justice. Why is it a crucial issue for communities of color? 
Right, and I'm so happy to be here with you today. Um, that's a that's a big and small question. Um, the the short answer is uh, there is no backup planet, um, as far as I know. And so, if we destroy the one that we have now, it's not like we have other places to go. And so, uh, that which drives most of our work. But the more complicated answer is that Black Women for Wellness had actually backed into environmental justice in a way kind of like, wait, what, what, what's going on? Because we know that there's climate change and global warming that's happening in our communities. We know that people of color, particularly women of color, are the ones often feeling the full brunt of what that looks like. But when particularly we came into the environmental space for two reasons, one around fracking or oil exudation, which was happening in the backyards of our communities. And we couldn't figure out what was going on um, other than that people were getting sick. Um, and then two, we were looking at environmental toxins and, and our personal care products, and particularly that intersection between reproductive health outcomes and the things that we might put on our bodies and what we wear um, and our perfumes and our hair care products. And what we saw with that, uh, with the data that we had and talking to people in communities and our hairdressers and our stylists is that there is something going on here. Um, and the products that we are using are having a hell of an impact on our health. And so we wanted to explore that more because we know that uh, the, our beauty salon folks are backbones in our community. Uh, we have a lot of conversations, a lot of space is spent, or a lot of time is spent in that space. Um, and we wanted to make sure that this community was upheld. Um, same with the looking at fracking, particularly with our young people and folks getting rare cancers in our community and wanting to know how do we stop this? And so there for, for us, there's actually not really a separation between reproductive justice and environmental health and rights and justice, because if we are thinking about you know, whether we want to have children, not have children, or be able to raise our family in sustainable communities, all of that is dependent on if we are able to breathe, if we're able to have clean water, if we're able to be fertile, if we want to have children, if we are able to go outside and be in the parks, all of those things are um, intricately connected to, to the work. Many people don't necessarily know that if you're of color and particularly if you're a black American, um, you're more likely to live near one of the most highly toxic uh, waste areas in the United States. So, you know, nearby most toxic waste sites are the poorest Americans and amongst them people of color. So children growing up in spaces that um, are just uh, filled with with toxins. And on top of that, you see communities where um, the pollution is so gravely high and where there may be outdated piping that's running through communities and into homes. Um, 
people living in homes where there may not be lead abatement just yet. So these are some of the additional ways, would you say, that, you know, environmental injustice um, makes its way into the lives of people of color. What's your response to that, Narvesi? Yeah, absolutely. If you look at many communities, Black folks are more likely to have or go to hospitals because of asthma, particularly in very polluted communities. Um, one of the things that we had just been looking at, there was some data released looking at the links between global warming and maternal health outcomes or pregnancy outcomes. And what we saw was the hotter it gets, the more likely there are stillborns. The hotter it gets, the more likely there are premature births. And so we know that uh, when we live in communities that are urban deserts, right? And that there are heat um, spaces where they are creating more heat because we don't have parks and there's just concrete that's going on, that that uh, impacts our mamas, it impacts our, our folks, it impacts our kids. Um, one of the things we thought was really interesting is that research is showing that carbon is actually, going, is actually being found in placentas. Black carbon is being found in placentas and placentas. So we know that at every level of life, whether it's lead in your water, um, that we saw that happen in Flint, that has actually happened in many other communities, to um, pregnancy, where you're getting and breathing in this air that can actually impact your pregnancy outcomes, that the whole cycle of life is impacted by where you live and your access to a healthy environment. And researchers are calling this environmental racism. So, and for those who research environmental racism, they say that uh, it's left Black Americans three times more likely to die from pollution than their white counterparts. So environmental racism has left Black Americans three times more likely to die from uh, pollution. And, you know, the, Amer the environmental protection um, agency has issued a report and their report shows that uh, black american communities face really high levels of pollution and they're more likely to live as you know near toxic waste sites uh, near landfills uh, near industrial plants that pollute water and air and erode quality of life um, in fact, from a report that was issued by uh, Bartice Cox just a few years ago, um, they write, because of this, more than half of the 9 million people living near hazardous waste sites are people of color. And then again, that Black Americans are three times more likely to die from exposure to air pollutants than their white uh, counterparts. And so, you know, these issues then bring it straight back to home for so many and in fact just going one step further on the report that was put out by Bartice Cox they write um, that in St. James Parish in Louisiana it sits in an area that's actually known as Cancer Alley and it's a stretch of the Mississippi River between New Orleans and Baton Rouge where dozens of refineries and industrial facilities are fueling a public health crisis, they say, um, according to P 
people who live there. So many cancers coming out of that. But Osprey, I, I wanted to get back to you now, you know, now that we've done even more level setting in terms of the intersections, the intersections of race and sex and environment, and get back to this Paris Climate Agreement to see how the Paris Climate Agreement uh, might have any kind of influence on this. And so, you know, you've been a bit, uh, you've been supportive, but you've also been critical about what Paris Climate Agreement can do and what it currently can't do. So can you address what you see as perhaps some of the locations of this climate agreement? Um, how have you written about its failure to some of the root of climate injustice in our society? Uh, sure, I, I definitely want to do that. And I, I just wanted to make a quick comment because I was really excited to hear what you were both saying um, about um, the health impacts of, uh, of pollution in communities of color. And I just want to make a quick comment and then I'll just uh, go back to your question, which is that um, I, I think this issue is huge. And, and uh, I, it just circumstantially happens to be that next week, uh, our organization is going to be releasing uh, a report called Gendered and Racial Impacts of the Fossil Fuel Industry in North America and Complicit Financial Institutions, a call to action for the health of our communities and nature in the climate crisis. And it goes into a deep analysis of what is going on in uh, Black communities, African American communities, um, Latina communities, and also with Indigenous women and the intersection of what is happening with women of color due to climate change, due to uh, fossil fuel pollution and fracking and these big petrochemical plants that are now going to be going on in the Gulf. And uh, it's very serious. So I'm really wanted to highlight and thank you for bringing up that issue. And just to mention also, in addition to what's happening in uh, with African-American women, we also see with indigenous women um, with the pipelines, which is again connected to the industry. Um, we've worked for many years, you know, to shut down the Keystone XL pipeline that you had mentioned earlier, but also right now, you know, one of the big struggles is with line three in Minnesota. And um, there is uh, the connective issue around um, women is that there's a lot of sexual violence associated with these pipelines because pipeline workers come in from outside the community and they have man camps, which are, you know, housing uses housing units of thousands of workers who come in and uh, basically attack and uh, um, the, the indigenous women. And it's a very, very serious issue that leads to the missing murder indigenous women crisis in the United States and also up in Canada. So I just wanted to, to bring that in because it's... I'm glad that you did because leading the way in that conversation has been indigenous women. And so one of the um, missing aspects before we get back to the Climate Paris Agreement, because this is this is important, um, which is that um, really, you know, some of the most vocal um, advocates for environmental justice, the recognition of environmental racism has been indigenous women who've been at the front lines of these conversations, even before the Keystone Pipeline um, calling attention to water equity, even, for example, which we still haven't really had the kind of robust conversation that we should, and the ways in which um, a failure to pay attention um, to the ways in which we zone the industrial zoning, the, the pipelining, the, you know, 
denial of a real voice to Americans to speak out and speak up. Um, all of that has been really, you know, a significant amount of that has been indigenous women led, but they've been rendered invisible in many ways within the environmental movement. So I'm glad that you you raised that. And if you want to comment any more on that, I, you know, I think our listening audience would love to hear it. Sure, I'll, I'll say some more about that. I, and I'm, I do think that it's so key to look at um, the role of indigenous women, as you say, um, they have been very vocal and been working for decades. Um, and I think it, it, it's, it's really key to, to point out that um, there is international law, law, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which includes a clause on free, prior, and informed consent. And this is not being implemented in the United States and in many countries around the world where there are laws that give indigenous tribes the right to say no to fossil fuel extraction, no to fossil fuel infrastructure, no to projects of extraction on their lands, and that's not being recognized. Uh, there are also treaty rights that continue to be violated in this country. And so um, I think it's something that we need to serious look at, look at in the United States is um, you know, one of the policies that is really missing, not only from the United States, but also from the Paris Agreement, is the true implementation of free prior informed consent, where indigenous peoples have the right to say what happens on their lands. And this is really important because 80%, 80% of all the biodiversity left on earth right now is in the hands and lands of indigenous peoples. So one of the key ways we can address environmental racism address the climate crisis, address protection for forests and water and the global climate is to support indigenous peoples. First, they have the right to their own sovereignty and the right to live in their traditional ways on their land, first and foremost, but also it impacts all of us. So I think it's really key to understand that this is where the water is, this is where the forest is, this is one of the key ways we can protect our climate is to uplift indigenous rights. And indigenous women are key to that because they have always been um, the leaders of the resistance movements in their communities. They are knowledge keepers of traditional ecological knowledge about how to live in harmony with nature, how to live in a healthy way. With, with the natural world. So I think for a variety of reasons, it's really time that we recognize the, the first nations of the country that we're in and the relationship with nature, the solutions that they offer and their rights. Mm -hmm. That's it's an excellent point. And I'm so glad that, that you raised it and that we've added it um, in important ways to this conversation. And, you know, there's a piece that then connects back to the criticism that you've had with regard to the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, which is that one really needs to pay attention to the economics uh, behind it and to um, matters that um, that affect just this the sort of what you call the neoliberalism economic models that drive the destruct destructive commodification of nature um, and uh, market-based mechanisms. So can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Sure. Um... I think that it's really important to understand that we need a transformative model. In other words, if we continue uh, the economic practices that we're engaged in now and the um, economic frameworks of neoliberal capitalism, the current system that we're in, 
it can't be a solution because that is actually one of the root causes of how we are in the climate crisis. So, you know, as people have, you know, continue to say, um, you know, we can't get ourselves out of the situation we're in using the same model that we've been in over and over again, stemming from something that um, Einstein had said. So I think that it's really important to, to look at the financing and look at the systems, um, you know, for us to uh, really um, be in a situation where we can change our economic structure means including the consideration of what we are calling a just transition. Um, in essence, we need to move away from our current extractive economy that is based on the exploitation of indigenous peoples, as we're talking about people of color, women, and the land. Um, we really need to end the tragic cycle of capitalism, which is based on sacrifice peoples, sacrifice zones, and sacrifice zip codes. Um, so as an example, you know, we and the United States were founded on the genocidal colonization of indigenous peoples and the global enslavement of African peoples. And in the United States, we don't really have a full democracy yet. Um, and it is because we are based on capitalism, colonization, racism, and patriarchy, which continue to undermine uh, a system that would actually work for everyone, which is based on a care economy, as an example and many other economic models that we're looking at that are not dependent on GDP, uh, that are not dependent on endless economic growth. Uh, GDP is really insufficient and detrimental to as an economic indicator. And we need to look at alternatives and really open up our minds that people have been living in different ways with nature and each other for a really long time that, you know, um, capitalism and the way that we are structuring our world on endless economic growth is not the only value system. Um, we can look at different types of values of wealth, such as uh, happiness, um, looking at uh, how we need to visibilize women's work, housework, raising children, caring for the elderly, and see that a lot of this unpaid work is very undervalued. Um, that we can look at, as an example, again, indigenous peoples, they have concepts called, as an example, Buen Vivir, which is living well in your community with people and nature. And I think it's uh, a time to look at feminist economics, which again is based upon a care economy, care for each other, care for the planet. And this exploitation and extractivism has caused us to not only be destroying the planet, uh, uh, the potential for future generations, um, but it is also causing so much conflict in our communities. So I need to change, change that economic model. So, so when you mentioned GDP, just for our listening audience, that's gross domestic product, and it's a monetary measure of the market value of all of the final goods and services produced over a specific period of time. But there's been a real struggle in our uh country over time to move away from capitalist models and we saw the types of hearings that took place decades ago in our country uh calling people before washington dc if they had any socialist or communist kind of uh, uh sympathies um and so you know even though today there's a much broader conversation about what our economic system should look like and certainly we see the struggle especially during pandemic where when one looks at the hundreds of thousands of jobs that were lost, primarily women lost those jobs during pandemic. And so what you're speaking to is real, right? And so what we've been 
you know, lifting up in this conversation then is that when we think about the environment and global warming, one has to connect it also with matters um, that involve um, reproductive health. Um, that involve the zip codes, as you mentioned, Osprey, where people live, uh, that involve matters involving racism and what's happened with regard to indigenous peoples in our country, um, how this, you know, plays out in black and brown communities, uh, and much more. And Norbise, I want to get back to you because uh, you've written about and you began talking about just what these basic issues mean in the lives of the women that you write about and that you work on, right? So with Black Women for Wellness, you've written about the environmental hazards just associated with uh, what Black women put on their skin and how that affects um, not only in the environment, but it affects their health. And it seems to me that there is a deeper social and political conversation to be had with that. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you were meaning? Because, because you certainly weren't talking about, I think, natural hair care products. You're talking about something else. So tell us what you were, what you're writing about and, and why this has been a concern. Yeah. Um, oof, where to start? I think one I know of the where pieces- to start because that's a deep <laughs> conversation, right? We could do a couple episodes just on that. I'm going to start kind of with the 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 big macro space and where we were looking at in terms of the ideas around beauty in general, um, and why this is important because we the way we think about ourselves and also beauty is not something just skin deep it actually buys you access into places, right? And so a lot of times when we think about beauty, folks are thinking about it just as like the way my personal style is. And for Black women in particular, not only are we thinking about our humanity, it is also our access into places, right? And we have seen that folks who are farther from the Europe centric standards of beauty have rougher times getting into spaces. So the way we do our hair can be considered political, right? But also can also keep us out of jobs, right? And so the ideas around how we look, it's deeper than our personal choice. It is us trying to always remind folks that we are also human. Right, and our dignity is tied up in that, in a way, in a particular way in this country and also around the world, that um, that is not unique in terms of folks of color, but you, but the ways in which it impacts Black women is unique in how it manifests, and so that is the overall conversation and what we were thinking about when we started looking at hair care products and why it's so important. Because when those when we had those conversations in kitchens with grannies and about, you know, are we going to straighten our hair or not? It was a deeper conversation than uh, we just like straight hair, right? It was a conversation about how do we protect you? How do we make sure that you are not ostracized, right? And then we started looking at, well, we have to do all these things to fit into these places, right? And that if we, again, we know that beauty buys you into places and if you are farther from white skin, straight hair, all those other pieces, 
what do you have to do to get into those spaces with that space? Well, it's funny that you should mention that because Professor Wendy Green has been behind the has has been the voice inspiration and has done so much of the research behind the Crown Act. And California was the first state to uh, enact the Crown Act, uh, which is basically uh, protecting black women to be able to uh, work, <laughs> go into places, etc., without discrimination based on hair. And sadly, uh, within law, when Black women have challenged um, requirements in employment that they must straighten their hair in order to work in a certain place, um, they had traditionally lost many of those challenges. Um, but the reality behind what Black women are forced to do when they must subject themselves to these chemicals um, is really quite stunning. And so could you share that with the audience? Because it seems that judges really didn't get it. And for the most part, lawmakers for a long period of time just didn't get it. Um, and the US military didn't really get it. So can you actually share with the audience what it means when um, black women are for use some of the products on their hair? What can some of the results be? And little girls too. Right, right. Um, and then shout out to Senator Mitchell now, Supervisor Mitchell, who was the person who spearheaded the Crown Act here in California. Um, there are a range of different things that we saw, right? Um, from skin lightening could cause cancers um, with the chemicals in it, that we saw that Black women had some of the most toxic chemicals on the market that they were using on a regular, consistent basis. There are things like formaldehyde and what we call like Brazilian blowouts um, are ways to like semi-permanently straighten your hair. These are the ones that you do for six weeks. Um, there was sodium hydroxide or calcium hydroxide and, um, and relaxers. And what those chemicals did were they are some of the most uh, caustic chemicals on the market in the sense of they are gateways. They cause abrasions and pieces and um, uh, breaks in the skin. So if you were, you know, if you put other stuff on your hair afterwards, they have a direct entry into your system. We saw a connection to fibroids, uh, which was something that 80% of Black women uh, have had in their life or will have in their life. And so we saw all, a range of different respiratory issues. If you name it, they are the chemicals. They did, right? Yeah. And including like burns right like so so people actually losing their hair and right. their scalps burning in dramatic ways these aren't just like little patches but no. whole hair um whole scalp burns right um but the idea that this is something that black women must subject themselves to on a regular basis in order to hold a job in the u.s military or at a restaurant or in a company is is really outrageous right it's egregious right and the idea that how you look and how you wear your hair is an indicator of your access to not only employment, but relationships, but into all types of spaces. And if you are valued, is ridiculous. Well, and doesn't it also say something too about stereotypes? Because, you know, in the testimonies that have been given, um, as states have now um, had is the sort of model crown 
before them and the testimony that's been given is the sort of presumption that uh, black women and their natural hair uh, somehow are dirty right um which is a deep stereotype that you know seems to me to come from the legacies of slavery and jim crow i mean it's something that's manufactured in many ways yeah i mean we've heard everything from um dirty and uncut to the fact of uh that they're more likely to take drugs if they are uh have natural hair um so so hair braids lead to, to <laughs> drug use illicit drug use essentially that's what it's supposed to be like i mean i mean you can't make that real, up right um and like we don't think that stereotypes are important but those are the things that uh we are when we are in court when we are in um, hospital treatment when all these things we talk about implicit and explicit bias right they are based on stereotypes of people microaggressions and macroaggressions exactly yeah. and so those ideas where we think it might be harmless or funny right and are absolutely ridiculous have an absolute real impact on your access to care well, and, and on that point, I, I guess before turning back to Osprey, you know, it'd be important to also say that these are not just matters that are concerning for uh, people in employment, but also this affects children, too, because there are also school codes uh, and dress codes that also have prohibited essentially Black kids from being able uh, to wear their hair in natural styles. And sadly, we've even seen some viral videos of black children with their hair being cut off, you know, mid sport game or afterwards um, that they come home and their parents see them with their hair cut off because some school official or school related official thought that it was appropriate in order for the child to be able to either participate in a school sanctioned activity or simply to be at school. Yeah, and just think how traumatizing that is. If you come to hair, come to school, very proud of your hair, your braids, and your teacher cuts them off, right? And what we also see is behind black boys, black girls are the second most likely to get suspended from school, most of the time for things like dress code and other violations, right? That has to do with the way they look. Right, and then the connection back to the way they look is that the only way to get them to not look like the, that look is the forcing them into these chemicals that you've just talked about being the most dangerous, some of the most dangerous chemicals on the market that otherwise we would say, this is what you should be subjected to. So any teachers out there, any principals who are listening who want to see the black girls in the school with some straight hair, know that on the other side of that, what you're asking for is that those kids are subjected to some very intense toxic chemicals in order to satisfy your dress code. All right, so um, Osprey, with all of that, we've covered so much already uh, in the show, but before we begin wrapping up, I'm curious to hear from both of you about your expectations of the Biden-Harris administration. And I wanna start with you, Osprey. So you know, what is it that the Biden-Harris administration can do to address some of the issues that we have been talking about. You've mentioned a feminist agenda uh, with regard to the environment. There's the Green New Deal. Um, how exactly should the Biden-Harris administration go forward with aligning with a feminist and woman-led climate movement? 
Uh, I'm really honored that uh, our organization, We Can, is um, one of the co-founders of the Feminist Green New Deal Coalition, which is putting forward a transformative feminist agenda for climate policy and program that centers the leadership of women and strives to address the generational impacts of colonization and racism. Um, for the very reasons you both were just discussing and we were talking about indigenous women, black and brown women, I mean, we need to have um, this administration really deal not only with climate justice, but gender and racial justice, economic justice, immigration issues. It's all connected. We need an intersectional analysis. We can't just separate all of these issues out as if they're not connected. All of these systems of oppression are impacting all of us. And the only way that we're really going to have the kind of agenda that it's really going to address racism, colonization, patriarchy, and our economic systems is if we see the interconnection and operate in a very comprehensive way throughout all policy sectors. And I think this is really at the crux of it because all of these movements and all of these struggles have been really kept in their silos. And we as people in the movement know that it is not possible for us to go forward unless there's real reparations uh, to communities historically excluded from Commonwealth, you know, uplifting the leadership and demands of African American and black, uh, black communities, the movement for black lives, the Me Too movement. Um, I'm really excited by indigenous led resistance movements. This idea of land back has to be really centered of giving land back to indigenous peoples. I think this is, this is the role of the Biden administration Harris is to really understand that it's all connected, people and planet. And if we can't really have an agenda that addresses our communities, then we're not really progressing towards the solutions that are really going to, to help us out. And, and I just wanted to say, for me, listening to both of you, you know, I'm over here fighting back tears of both rage and, and horror and sadness. Um, I think that um, one of the things I, I wanted to mention as, as all of us working collectively in our movements right now is that when we're talking about feminism, we need a feminism that is not the white feminism that has seriously been critiqued as it ought to have been. Um, you know, the experience of black women, the experience of indigenous women, the experience of brown women, the experience of white women is not the same. And right now, a lot of people like to say, oh, you know, we're in this COVID-19 pandemic. We're all in this together. And I agree, we are all in this together, but we're not in this together evenly. We're not in the climate crisis together evenly. We're not in the economic crisis together evenly. And I think we need to really call that out and work together, but also be very clear that this is an embodied experience. My experience is, is different than indigenous or brown or black woman. And those, the only way we're gonna to work together is by recognizing these nuances, delving into them deeply, listening to each other and really coming up with um, a way forward. And, and this is on the, the shoulders of not just the Biden-Harris administration, but all of us to uh, really ensure that we enlist policies that are comprehensive across all sectors and really are community led. It's enough of the corporate agenda. It's enough of the militarized agenda. It's enough of these colonized and racist policies. We really don't have time anymore. Too many people's lives are at stake. 
and 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 we're in a crisis so we need transformative bold change right at the moment so <clears throat> narbisi let me put that question to you about the biden harris uh administration what would you like to see come forward uh what is it that they can do that will make an impact first everything that was just said um because that was a lot <laughs> so that the full word but i think also one of my biggest um wishes um is for us to start reimagining and changing the narrative of what's possible. A lot of times when we talk about climate change um, or global warming or the Green New Deal, this is looked at some type of thing that somebody's losing, right? You'll have to give up something and then maybe the earth will be okay, right? Um, and to change it into, there is, possibilities that are far beyond what we are living now and better than what we are living now. And this is one of the ways that we can get there. I don't think uh, this conversation, what I've heard so far in the kind of mainstream media has been helpful because they've talked about climate change as like, well, you're going to have to do all this stuff. And then, you know, you might have to be you know, planning your own food. And the folks are like, I don't know how I feel about that. But um, the idea of being able to like walk down your street and get local food from a local farmer's market um, and having a tomato that came down the street instead of miles and miles away, like hundreds of miles away and the difference in thinking about the taste of it, right? That's a whole new experience. And so I would really love to see an avid effort of redesigning the conversation about how this is something that is beneficial to all of us, right? It is a way in which we can actually have a new future that is not limited by the mediocrity of white man's dreams. And like just being very um, intentional about that, like this is not the best that we have right now. We are not in the best space right now. We can actually do so much better, but we also have to reimagine what that looks like and be intentional, intentional about making sure that we are moving to get there. Well, on that note, that brings us actually to the final question for the show, which is a quick question wrap up, which is, What's the silver lining? So we've talked about many things and there's much more time that we could spend on this. We didn't even get to food deserts and the fact that there are communities that uh, live, one, indigenous communities that have gone through COVID without proper plumbing or any plumbing into their homes. Uh, we've not talked about the fact that you have uh, communities in cities like Chicago where there are virtual food deserts, where there's no fresh food uh, within reasonable walking distance, or in some instances, even driving distances, if people do have cars, um, and drought and so much more. And so I do hope that you'll come back so that we can talk even more about some of those issues. But given all of that, are there any silver linings that you see? So this is a quick wrap up question. And I'm going to start with you, Norbasi. Um, What's the silver lining? My silver lining is that we have hope. Um, we are at least moving forward now um, and not moving backwards. Uh, so I'm excited about that. And the fact that there are people who are excited, particularly elected officials that are excited to change the narrative, change the conversation and make sure that we're centering people 
who have been harmed in this environmental justice space or injustice space um, as we move forward. Thank you so much for that. Osprey. Yeah, I think the silver lining is that uh, there's a big wake up call now between the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, the different climate crises that are happening in people's communities right now. And we do have an opportunity to uh, really do what is best for people and uh, for the natural environment. And I think that that's, you know, the moment that we're in, we have, you know, as they say, crisis can turn into opportunity. And so how do we take this chance to build back in a way that justice is centered, um, that the care and concern for, you know, racial, economic, immigrant, gender, and global justice is centered. We have an opportunity now to really reimagine where we want to go at this critical time. And I think that part's really exciting. And I have to give a shout out to the youth because they're really a strong voice right now. And I'm thrilled with a lot of the, their sentiments and their enthusiasm for, for where we need to go at this time. Thank you both very much for joining me for this special episode on our environment. Guests and listeners, that's it for today's episode of On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin. I want to thank my guests, Nurbasi Flint and Osprey Oriel Lake, for joining us and being part of this critical and insightful conversation. And to our listeners, I thank you for tuning in for the full story. We hope you join us again for our next episode where we will be reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is with special guests tackling issues related to motherhood. It will be our Mother's Day episode. It's an episode that you will not want to miss. For more information about what we discussed today, please head to MsMagazine.com. And if you believe, as we do, that women's voices matter, that equality for all persons cannot be delayed, and that rebuilding America, being unbought and unbossed, and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google podcast and stitcher we are ad free and reader supported help us reach new listeners and bring the hard-hitting content you've come to expect by rating reviewing and subscribing let us know what you think about our show and please support independent feminist media look for us at mismagazine.com for new content and special episode updates and if you want to reach us to recommend guests for our show or topics that you want to hear more about then write to us at on the issues at mismagazine.com and we do read our mail this has been your host michelle goodwin reporting rebelling and telling it like it is on the issues with michelle goodwin is a ms magazine joint production kathy spiller and michelle goodwin are our executive producers our producers for this episode are roxy zoll and mariah Lindsay. we thank oliver hogg for research and digital assistance the creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez and Marsh Allen, and music by Chris J. Lee. Stephanie Wilner provides executive assistance. Music